The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. U.S. stocks hit sell-off mode, the Nasdaq registering its worst day since February as investors digest the pitch downgrade. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon tells CNBC the decision was ridiculous. This is the most prosperous nation on the planet, North America. We have the Atlantic and the Pacific, the best military, the best economy the world's ever seen, the most innovation. The credit is sound. It should be the highest rated credit in the world. 25 or 50, the Bank of England prepares to hike interest rates for its 14th consecutive time in a row as it appears inflationary pressures have begun to ease. Watch our conversation with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey at 4 p.m. BST. SockGen launches a share buyback program and confirms its full-year outlook as the French lender reports an adjusted net income of 1.2 billion euros for the second quarter. In other earnings, uh, stateside, Qualcomm shares uh, sink in extended trade after after essentially the chipmaker posts uh, a miss on revenues and issues softer guidance as attention turns to Apple later today with numbers out of the belt. Welcome to Squawk Box. Thank you for joining Tanvir and myself this morning. Let's run you through the action we saw on Wall Street yesterday. We were uh, watching very closely the reaction across the globe to the Fitch downgrade of the U.S. sovereign credit rating. And the reaction stateside and around the world was uh, quite negative. Here's the picture of where things closed up. The tech-heavy Nasdaq led the losses for U.S. stock markets, pulling back more than 2%. It was the worst day since February for that tech-heavy index. The S&P 500 also had a difficult trading session, dropping 1.4%, its worst day since April. The Dow Jones fared a little bit better, but still lost about 1%. Now, 9 out of 11 sectors were negative in the session, so the majority of the market did pull back. There was one sector, though, that stood out to the downside, and you've got it right there in front of you, the tech sector, with the Nasdaq underperforming. Here's a look at some key U.S. tech names and the moves lower that we saw. As you can see here, the mega cap tech name suffered uh, significant losses yesterday. Uh, Alphabet pulling back 2.5%, Amazon pulling back 2.6%, NVIDIA, which of course has been a star performer in the chip space, pulling back nearly 5%. Meta also suffered about 2.6% worth of losses. So uh, a bit of repricing in the tech space, the sector that has done so well year to date. And in terms of earnings, uh, the picture uh, continues to get some color today. We've got uh, earnings due out from Apple and Amazon. So two names to watch closely today in addition to everything that's driving the broader sector. In Treasury markets, we saw yields hit nine-month highs after that surprise downgrade. Uh, not a huge move in terms of the magnitude, but directionally we've got yields moving higher across the board here. The 10-year now sits at 4.12%. The two-year uh, standing at about 4.9%, so the inversion's still alive and well. The five-year in between those to trading at around 4.3%. Now, Asian markets, a little bit more recent. Here's the picture. We've got uh, the losses moderating, but still 
though negative momentum continues. Nikkei 225 is the underperformer, down a further 1.4%. Yesterday, this index pulled back about 2.3% as investors fled for safety into the uh, Japanese yen. That was part of the action that we saw in the Japanese market. Hang Seng yesterday also suffered some serious losses, pulling back about 2.5%. This morning, things stabilizing there. Shanghai Composite down about to 20 basis points or so. So again, some stabilization, but still uh, sentiment is a fairly downbeat. Now, we've had a lot of reaction to the Fitch downgrade. Let me highlight for you what we've now heard from J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon. He called for the debt ceiling to be scrapped, telling CNBC in an exclusive interview that certainty is required in an uncertain world. Dimon also urged Fitch to restore America's AAA rating. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, you know, the markets decide. It's not the rain agents who make these big decisions. Number two, they point out some issues which we all knew about, about our debt ceiling crisis and things like that. But uh, number three, most important, the American public, this is the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's still the most prosperous nation on the planet. It's the most secure nation on the planet. And I would point out to the rating agency, if I could, that there are a bunch of countries rated higher than us, like AAA, but they live under the American uh, enterprise military system. For, to have them be AAA and not America is kind of ridiculous. Ridiculous uh, being the operative term there. Uh, in fact, uh, keeping it with that story, Fitch's co-head of America's uh, sovereign ratings also spoke to our U.S. colleagues and outlined what would be required for the AAA rating to be restored. I think there's a couple of things that we'd probably want to see. One would be um, some kind of solution, long-term fiscal solution, um, tackling the entitlement programs, for example, um, you know, willingness to somehow look at the revenue side of the picture and or the spending side of the picture and actually bring down the deficits enough to at least stabilize the debt to GDP, which I mentioned is already like three times the, the level of the AAA median. So it's, it's, it's much higher than the AAA uh, median. Ted Vera, it was great to hear from Fitch directly to give Fitch an opportunity to publicly defend what has been a decision that's been attacked by so many within the finance industry. Um, and I thought in particular, Carl Quintanilla, our U.S. colleague who spoke to Fitch, his question about um, governance was particularly interesting because mm -hmm. governance was cited as one of the key reasons, the key concerns that Fitch had that led to the downgrade. And he said, You've even referenced January 6th and all these governance issues. Why didn't you move forward with this downgrade back then a couple of years ago? Right. And Fitch's response was that there's been a steady deterioration in governance in the United States. And more important than January 6th and, and everything that happened on Capitol Hill then is the fact that there is constant brinkmanship in Congress, that mm. every time this debt ceiling debate comes up, they just can't seem to uh, come to an agreement in any, uh, in, in any good time. And so brinkmanship was a real source of concern for Fitch. But Juliana, uh, you and I have been in the market for a while now. I mean, you see that debt ceiling issue play out every single year. And the playbook is pretty much defined, right? So 11th or 59th minute, they do the deal. Until then, there's a lot of politics that uh, does the round. So I feel like uh, the market's overall assessment that this is just an anomaly, this is just perhaps a trigger for taking some profits off the table, uh, is bang on. Because if you look at the market reaction yesterday, 2% down for average major indices, uh, some of the techs were down, and they've had a 
very very strong rally thus far so in in total i think a lot of market participants are saying look this is a reaction to outdated data something that we already knew the, the timing is interesting credit ratings have the reputation of being behind the curve so you can't take that away uh, but don't be surprised that this would be a reason for the markets to kind of readjust and reprice themselves uh, to the downside just that little bit it's interesting that at a time when all this was going on on the macro front with you know everybody analyzing uh, fitch's comments you've had Oppenheimer Asset Management come out and increased their year-end target for the S&P to 5,000. Citi has upgraded its mid-2024 target for the S&P to 5,000. And so, yeah, people are feeling more confident about earnings. The 2.10 spread has actually come below 80 basis points, and the curve is steepening. So people are looking uh, more into the future for economic resilience. And all that debate around soft landing is also being questioned: that whether or not we will get a soft landing or indeed stronger growth. So something that we need to be mindful of. Uh, We should actually move on uh, and talk about uh, earnings in this part of the world. Of course, uh, our big story will continue to be Fitch and uh, the overhang it's creating for the markets. But ING results crossed the wires uh, a little while ago, and I just want to mark those results for you. We saw, if I could just bring up those numbers, it was interesting to see how they have done uh, pretty much on expected lines on the net interest income front. Uh, as well as uh, the profitability front uh, for this particular quarter their ced1 ratio came in at 14.9% which is what uh, the market was expecting as well and they've done pretty well on uh, the overall uh, net interest income front as well uh, given the fact that there was a fair amount of challenge that they faced uh, and and uh, the net interest income in fact has been more resilient given that they have seen a stronger pass through onto savings rates uh, in this particular quarter in fact on that note let me just go across uh, to Tanate Futrekel who's the CFO of uh, ING joining us uh, with his uh, thought on things uh, and their business plans it's lovely to have you sh- uh, sir on the show thank you very much for your time uh, seems like the numbers have beaten street expectations but what is your overall outlook on earnings and net interest income thank you very much uh, we are very pleased with our strong results this quarter I think it's is really uh, pleased pleased to see that our revenues are up 23%. We have managed our costs with a lot of discipline despite wage inflation. I think what's pleasing to see is also the fact that credit risk is uh, very resilient that we manage non-performing loans really well and we don't see much deterioration in our books during the course of uh, the second quarter and all that kind of ties into very strong profitability, strong capital generation. So it's been a good set of results. It indeed has been. Does that mean that going forward you can build more strength for your balance sheet? Your CET one ratio coming in at fourteen point nine percent. I think uh, the consensus expectation was fourteen point six percent on that parameter, and so you've outperformed there. Yeah. Do you think that you could build more strength from here? Well, what we have seen is really during the quarter strong profitability that basically increased our capital levels, but not only that. we have been actively managing our risk weighted assets managing our capital usage and these two factors combined to have this strong capital we are actually in the middle of a share buyback at the moment which lasts until uh, middle of october we're doing a 1 and 1/2 billion euro share buyback and we have indicated to the market that at the end of our third quarter when we have results we will give better guidance about our any future capital management actions that we may take Sir, good morning um, to you. This is Juliana. Um, how long are NII tailwinds likely to persist, even if rates don't move materially higher from here? 
Yes, that's that's an interesting question. So we, we do see from the forward curve that uh, rate hikes by the ECB and the Fed are likely to plateau from what we see. But having said that, you know, with the way we manage interest rate within the bank, we have both short-term benefits and something which are locked in for the long-term benefit as well. So while I think the pace of increases in terms of net interest income is likely to slow, we see a good foundation for sustained NII performance going forward. Let me ask you about uh, the cost front. Last quarter, expenses increased on the back of salary rises and higher marketing expenses. How did you manage on the cost front this quarter and what kind of guidance can you give us for the second half of the year? Yes. Well, what, what we do see is that the, the pace of uh, wage inflation is, is uh, starting to slow, you know, from the, the peak that we see in December, for example. So that pace is coming down, but we have core efficiency programs. As you know, we're one of the most digital banks in Europe. Our digitization program, digitizing our internal back offices, for example, are leading to some of that uh, management of getting costs to be more flat than what we have seen in Q1. We will uh, leave the conversation there. Thank you for the detail and good luck getting through uh, your investor calls this morning. Taneta Futrakil, the CFO of ING. Now, we are counting down to the Bank of England's rate decision today, with the central bank all but certain to deliver its 14th straight hike, taking rates to their highest level since 2008. UK inflation eased to 7.9% in June, lower than expected, but still, of course, well above the BOE's 2% target. Core CPI also softened slightly, falling to 6.9% from 7.1% in May. Traders remain split on the size of the Bank of England's hike today, with markets pricing in around two-thirds chance the bank will slow the pace of hikes to 25 basis points and the implied probability of a larger 50 basis point hike standing at around 37%. Analysts are also split on what size hike the MPC will deliver this afternoon. Uh, and most expect a 25 basis point hike, with a city research note citing the risk of, quote, overkill from further tightening, warning of a wily coyote moment for the UK economy. However, Goldman, UBS and Barclays are among those calling for a 50 basis point hike, with UBS citing second quarter inflation above the BOE's May projection and continued wage rises as reasons for hawkishness. Well, let's get out to our central bank guru, Jamana, who's standing by outside of the uh -huh. Bank of England. Jamana, talk us through um, what to expect today and perhaps most important at this stage, what's changed between the June meeting and now. Good morning, ladies. That's right. So the Bank of England is expected to hike at least 25 basis points. So there is a 30% chance for the interest rate market that they go for a 50 basis point hike. A lot of the analysts I've uh, on this commentary I've written, I've I've read rather, not written, uh, have talked about why 25 basis points is on the cards. But many of the more hawkish voices out there are pointing to the fact that, yes, we have had that deceleration in the headline CPI rate since June, coming in at 7.9%. But there are lots of still persistent inflationary pressures, be it on core CPI inflation still sitting very close to 7%. We've got services inflation running very hot, the highest level in 30 years wage growth, private sector wage growth still sitting north of 7%. These are very, very high numbers and are very uncomfortable for the Bank of England. Now remember, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey in prior meetings has not wanted to give a steer, to, his, to use his term, on where interest rates are headed. But he has said that they would not hesitate to continue with monetary tightening 
should inflationary pressures be persistent? And that is what we're seeing with some of these underlying numbers. So yes, the headline is moving in the right direction, but the core pressures are still there. And that is why some analysts are saying that maybe they might surprise the market and go for a 50 basis point hike. Now, in terms of forecasts, this is obviously a forecast meeting as well. We're going to get a press conference after it. Remember, back in June, they did deliver that 50 basis point hike, but there was no uh, press conference after it, no forecast. Today, what we are likely to see is a mild, perhaps downgrade to their growth expectations. Um, this on back of some weakening activity data that we've been getting out. PMI numbers surprising to the downside. PMI manufacturing numbers also starting to disappoint a little bit relative to expectations. Inflation also one to watch. Now remember as well, since they've delivered that 50 basis points hike, or at least since the May meeting, interest rates or market expectations of interest rates have gone up. 140 basis points. So we're working off a much higher interest rate profile than we had at the last time they gave these forecasts. So we've got higher interest rate projections, we've got a stronger currency, we've got perhaps some signs that food inflation is beginning to come down, and you've got lower gas and electricity prices because the Ofcom um, uh, energy cap has moved lower. All of these things suggest that perhaps their inflation forecast might be slashed lower at a time when they're hiking interest rates. And the reason I bring this up is because yet again, it puts the Bank of England in a tricky position of trying to explain to the market, to the public, what they're doing here. How can you be slashing your inflation forecast on one side and continuing to hike on another? So again, that's gonna be a key challenge for communication. One final point I wanna bring up as well, because this is important too. The Bank of England have been one of the most proactive central banks in the world with regards to reducing their balance sheets. They started QT program uh, one year ago, last September, and up, uh, up until now they've done about £80 billion worth of reduction split between active guilt sales and passive guilt sales. There's some talk, especially after Dave Ramsden's speech a couple of weeks ago, that they may increase the size of the envelope to 90 or £100 billion. That could be somewhat of a hawkish surprise if they go bigger on the size of the balance sheet reduction. But all in all, Juliana, as I was saying, uh, the market is pretty much split between 25 50. There are reasons to go for 50 basis points, but will they do it? We'll find out in a couple of hours. And don't forget, I will be sitting down with the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey myself. That interview will air at 4 p.m., 3 p.m., um, 4 p.m., BSC. <laughs> <laughs> Shimani, you've got a long day ahead of you. Um, so much to cover between now and that interview, but certainly one to look forward to at 4 p.m. BST. Mark it on your calendars. Uh, coming up on the show, SoftGen beats a quarterly earnings expectations, adding to a strong run of results from Europe's banks. We break down those numbers with Charlotte Reed next. Plus, Apple is expected to report its third quarter in a row of declining sales. We look ahead at those numbers as well later on in the show with our resident tech expert Arjun Karpal and we'll speak to the CFO of Solvay after the chemicals giant missed second quarter revenue expectations. That interview is coming up at 8.30 a.m. CET.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box. The earnings continued to roll in, this time from AB InBev, the uh, beer maker which has been in the spotlight uh, as it deals with the fallout, the hangover from its marketing disaster in the United States after its marketing partnership with a transgender influencer uh, caused a ton of problems among some of its uh, more conservative customer base. Now, the results themselves, AB InBev reporting a 7.2% increase in total revenue in the second quarter uh, in terms of underlying profit, $1.45 billion. Uh, total volumes have declined over the course of the quarter, down 1.4%. Um, and in terms of the breakdown, uh, Tanvir, I think one of the most interesting uh, markets for this company this quarter in particular is the United States, given the uh, controversy and the, the backlash to that marketing scandal. And there, they've got revenues declining by 10.5%, impacted by volume performance. So they have seen a significant pullback Sales to wholesalers in the United States down 15%. Sales to retailers declined by 14%, underperforming the industry primarily due to the volume decline of Bud Light. EBITDA declined nearly 30%, uh, and that is due to uh, a market share loss, essentially. So some serious uh, uh, impact from that marketing scandal in the United States. Well, absolutely. I'll just add one bit, because Deutsche Bank came out with a buy rating on the stock at the end of June, and they said that this quarter would really capture the culture war impact uh, on the overall numbers, uh, but they're saying that as long as the product Bud Light and the other uh, beer, pro beer products uh, in the U.S. stay on the shelves, mm. that with the revival in consumer demand and consumer sentiment, you might just see revenue pick up. Uh, so yes, they lost a lot. In fact, 24% of volume uh, degrowth was seen because of Bud Light and 7% overall. Uh, but they believe that from a price to earnings perspective, so going forward at 16 and a half times, it's coming at a 23% discount. Uh, to other mm. European staples. So maybe, maybe, you know, the contrarian view is that uh, after this marketing disaster, right. things could be looking well, at I suppose that's the business. question. Do you think they're going to be able to recover from this? Will this prove yeah. to be a blip or is this going to be a long-standing switch away from Bud Light for some of these consumers which have taken uh, very negatively to the, the, the marketing disaster? Oh, yes, indeed. And that's showing up in the stock, which has lost about, what, I don't know, 20% plus over the last three months. Uh, post this event. Let's uh, talk about more earnings in the region. Uh, Societe General has reported 900 million euros in uh, group net income for the second quarter above analyst expectations. The French bank confirmed its full year guidance and launched a 440 million euro share buyback program. Uh, Charlotte Reed, of course, joins us uh, for more to break down the numbers. Charlotte, take it away. Good morning. Good morning, Tanvir. As you said, with these results, a little bit better than expected from Société Générale. Revenue down 9% by 6.3 billion for the second quarter. Net profit at 900 million. Of course, remember that last year they took a heavy loss because of the disposal of their Russian business, Rosbank, last year. So now they swung back to profit at 900 million. Cost of risk better than expected there as well, down 23% at 12 basic basis points. That took at the different parts of the business. French retail banking, their revenue was 
down heavily 13%. They said due to a decrease in net interest margin, but they also had a good performance in the online banking Boursorama, which is one bit of the business where they've been pushing quite aggressively and also good performance in private banking. International retail banking, their revenue was up 6%. Remember that just recently they announced the disposal of four of their African businesses there. And as part of the big reshuffle that we see happening at Societe Generale at the moment, global banking and investor services revenue down 7%. Of course, they say a less favorable market environment with equities revenue down 6% and FIC down 18%. Of course, all these performance here are interesting, but what uh, investors are very much focusing on is that this is the first set of earnings order the new CEO Slavomir Krupa after the 15 years of Frédéric Udea being at the helm of the bank. So they're trying to get a glimpse here this year, very much seen as a year of transition for Société Générale, the seal of these big strategic moves that have been uh, already in place, the merger of their two, uh, of their two French retail networks that have been emerging, the integration of their of lease plan into ALD, the car leasing business that they completed in May, of course, the, the risking of the investment bank that had been led already by Slavomir Krupa when he was the head of the investment bank. So all these elements that we're still very much focusing on. So this is first set of earnings. We have a conf call at 9CT where investors will try to get some glimpses here. But of course, the, the all eyes on the September 18th when the bank has their big uh, roadmap uh, for strategy and financial uh, objectives for the bank. So it's a bit of a wait and see at the moment for Societe Generale, but certainly these numbers here that are better than expected and the bank reconfirming their full year targets, guys. Great, Charlotte. Thanks very much uh, for giving us those numbers and the analysis they offer. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.